0: Welcome to the public morality. 50 years ago, yes, for those of us who are baby boomers, it was 50 years ago when there was a break-in at the Democratic National Headquarters at the Watergate office building. It would trigger congressional hearings and ultimately end the presidency of Richard Nixon. To begin our conversation on the golden anniversary of Watergate, I'm joined by Dr. Elaine Mark, Dr. Mark, Senior Fellow, at the Brookings Institution located in Washington, DC. Dr. Elaine K. Mark, welcome to The Public Morality.
1: Thanks for having me, Byron.
0: Since the Watergate break-in 50 years ago, it it has been described famously uh, by Nixon press secretary Ron Ziegler as a third-rate burglary. Others offered that the cover-up was worse than the crime. But here we are 50 years later, how do you view Watergate?
1: Well, 50 years later, Watergate still looks like a very serious abuse of power on the part of a president of the United States. Um, and I think that's the meaning of Watergate. It wasn't just the burglary. It was the entire operation of the Nixon White House and the Nixon Reelect committee. Um, it was the speaking into Daniel Ellsberg's Offices. It was, you know, it was hiding money. It was paying off the burglars. It was cash in Spiro Agnew's offices. It was a, it was a level of corruption that we hadn't seen before in the American presidency. And it was made all the more ironic because Richard Nixon was headed to a landslide victory over George McGovern in 1972. And this seemed just the abuse of power for the sake of abusing power.
0: Well, you you mentioned breaking into the Democratic National Headquarters seems like the ultimate nothing burger. Because looking back, it seems unlikely there would have been anything of significance there. And as you just said, in uh, and in June 1972, unlike June 1968, Nixon was clearly hit it um, for for a landslide victory. It, it appeared.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, George McGovern was a a very very weak candidate. He'd been nominated by a new generation of activists in the Democratic Party who are now old people and not active <laughs> in the Democratic Party. Um, it was clear he was going to lose. He had alienated his nomination, alienated big, important Democratic power brokers like Mayor Daley of Chicago. Um, it was clear he was going to lose. And there. what the break-in showed us was a mentality that, in fact, had been pervasive in the Nixon administration, which is that they could do anything they wanted, including breaking the law. And that's what was really, that was really revealed. I think when John Dean testified before the Watergate committee, he testified to, and I th- think this was his quote, a rot at the source, uh, at, the, at the bottom of the Nixon presidency. And that rot was a certain arrogance um, that they were above the law. And that I think is the real lesson of Watergate. Nobody's above the law.
0: And initially, even by media standards, it was not considered much of a story. I mean, Bryn Bradley, executive editor admits the only reason, executive editor of the Washington Post, I'm sorry, admits that the only reason the story appeared on the front page is because it was a slow news day and it happened at the Democratic National Headquarters. And the story was given to two, at the time, unknown reporters, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. And then CBS assigned a little-known Leslie Stahl to cover it. In June 1972, no one thinks this is a big deal.
1: (laughs) That's right. No one thought it was a big deal. And frankly, had it not been for the intervention of the deputy director of the FBI, um, who came to be known as, as Deep Throat, it was if it was not for him walking these two, you know, young reporters through the maze of the Nixon administration, it may very well have stopped there. Do you know what I mean? It may very well have stopped um, with uh, this third-rate burglary. But frankly, what was going on? What we now know was going on is that here these two guys, Woodward and Bernstein, got us young kids. They got assigned a nothing burger story. Right. And however, as they began reporting on this, they noticed that, for instance, the people who had done the break in had ties to the president's reelection committee. Well, even that may not have been a very big deal. But what the what Deep Throat now um, who we now know is Mark Felt, who's since died, but he at the end of his life, he said, yes, he was the one. What he did was he walked them through, um, all the information that they needed to see that this was a pattern of corruption and abuse of power that went deep into the Nixon administration and into the committee to reelect the president. And that's where, that's where things got really interesting, right? That's, if it wasn't for Mark Felt, I'm not sure that this would have ever been the major story and with the major consequences that it had.
0: Hmm. I mean, you mentioned some of this earlier, but uh, that it's really, it really was bigger than Watergate in the sense that I'm going back to Anna Chenault in 1968, who participated in sort of covert operations to sabotage Lyndon Johnson's efforts uh, to settle uh, the Vietnam War on the eve of the election. You mentioned the president, you mentioned the Pentagon Papers, the plumbers, I mean, the, the list goes on, so Watergate is just really one piece of a Really larger uh, cloak and dagger uh, is, uh, mission at the center of the Oval Office.
1: Yeah, that's right, and and at the center of the of the Nixon, you know, mentality. Um, f- you know, writ large. I mean, this was something that they started doing before the committee to reelect was was created. By the way, it was called Creep, which turns out to have been kind of <laughs> fortuitous. Fortuitous uh, indeed. <laughs> yeah, um, but th- this was this was something that reflected Richard Nixon's own deep sense of paranoia. That people were out to get him, that the elites were out to get him, and that the only way he had to fight back was to be a super, super tough guy. And so he so they, you know, they break bread with people like um, McCord, who are who is, you know, kind of a nutcase. Right. (laughs) And and and, um, people who are believe in special ops and they believe that you should just go for your enemies no matter no matter which way, because your cause is so right.
0: Where did that come from? Did it begin in the uh, with Alger Hiss? Um, was it the 1960 loss to Jack Kennedy, the 62 loss for Governor of California to Pat Brown? Where did this sort of hatred and, and uh, paranoia come from, in your estimation? I'm talking about speaking with Nixon.
1: Yeah, with Nixon. I suspect that it began with Alger Hiss, okay? It began with his experience there of seeing communists behind every bush and being, you know, really buying into that, which which was in fact partially true, okay? So we he, he wasn't he, it's not like he was totally crazy. I mean, there was attempts, there were attempts we now know it at infiltration in the US government. There were spies. Um although the, you know, the precursor to Watergate was in fact, were in fact the McCarthy hearings. And as happens with many of these things, um, a kernel of, a tr- of truth, a kernel of, um, you know, uh, accuracy turns into a giant nightmare. Um, where, you know, the McCarthy hearings were going after all sorts of people, including the United States Army for being infiltrated with communists. And it wasn't until um, McCarthy took on the army that the whole thing collapsed because people thought, okay, this guy's nuts. This, this this, you know, communist conspiracy, clearly he's over, it's overwrought. Um, so I think it began there. I think his resentments against elites and against people who defeated him um, got bigger in after the after his defeat for president and then his defeat for governor of California. I think they got bigger, you know, remember he went away and saying, you won't have Dick Nixon to kick around anymore. And that was, you know, that was more evidence of how, you know, he took, how hard he took this personally. Um, And I think then when he came back, all of these were baked into his experience and he just wanted to make sure this was never going to happen to him again. And the way he chose to do that was essentially by being really, really brutal towards his enemies and breaking the law. Looking back...
0: Were there several off-ramps that Nixon could have taken that would have allowed him to survive the moment? And at what point was he at that place of no return?
1: Well, the place of no return came fairly late, and it's hard to say where it was. But um, my guess is it was when his top A's, when Haldeman and Ehrlichman got indicted. Um, It was hard to believe that two people who were that close to the president, who Haldeman was absolutely the gatekeeper to Nixon, it was very hard to believe that the two of them were running a rogue operation without the knowledge of the president of the United States. So, you know, at that point, it it really was a point of no return. And then, of course, the absolute point of no return came really as as an accident. And the accident was when a young aide named Alex Butterfield said that it dropped a bomb on the committee by saying that there was a taping system in the Oval Office that was taping the president's conversations at that point the president was cooked because it was clear, You anybody can actually go listen to those tapes these days. Um, it was very clear that Richard Nixon knew about this and was participate, participating in the cover up. And of course, that's an obstruction of justice. When you're the president of the United States, it's not just obstruction of justice, it is also abuse of power. And that really was impeachable.
0: Looking back, uh, the famous question that we've seen, we've heard over and over since Watergate: um, What did the president know, and when did he know it? Was that originally uh, a question designed to give the president some cover?
1: You know, I don't remember that. Do you, Byron? I don't. Re- I don't no,
0: remember. no, I, I don't either. I was just wondering: yeah. was was it, was it an attempt to, you know, if, if, if you couldn't prove that yeah. the president knew it at a particular time? He was covered. Uh, That's why I was wondering that. I I don't know the answer to that either.
1: My my memory and that I could be wrong on this, but my memory is that that was one of the questions that emerged from the investigation as the investigation got closer and closer to the president's top aides. And there you have to look at Attorney General John Mitchell and. Um, Chief of Staff Haldeman and his top domestic advisor, Ehrlichman, uh, John Ehrlichman, though, uh, as as it got closer and closer, then it becomes very clear that probably the president knew something about this. It was hard to believe that the president didn't know something about this. And I think that's when it emerged. But um, I'm now going back 50 years in my memory, so it may not work.
0: You know, one of the aspects of Watergate that that I find so fascinating are all the subplots. I mean, you you mentioned Mark Felt, also known as Deep Throat. Um, There was the Saturday Night Massacre, and and you mentioned John Mitchell, and there was his wife, Martha. I mean, so there's all these little subplots that are going on, all these little moving pieces, and then, oh, by the way, there are tapes, huh? And so, you know, there's all this stuff going on. Take us back to the Saturday night massacre what was it? Um, was it just a Nixon at the last moment of desperation um, even after that could he have still
1: survived? Well when you when you when you fire people who are investigating you or cause them to be fired um, it obviously looks like you're guilty right so so first of all the optics of this were uh, pretty awful, right? It looked like he was guilty. A certain other president persist- did that most recently with with, um, with James Comey, right? Um, the head of the FBI. So it certainly looks like you're, it, it really does look like you're guilty as, as hell. So that was a big problem. And I think that the Saturday Night Massacre made it harder for Nixon to um, distance himself because it, it looked like, oh, he was afraid of these people something, something they knew something or they were getting close to something that he didn't want to happen. And of course, you know, you did have operating there. And the most important piece of that was not the Justice Department. The most important piece was the Senate committee, the Irvin committee, because they Nixon couldn't fire them. And they simply went about their work even more convinced that um, something something was wrong.
0: Take us back if you could, because you you mentioned Sam Irvin, you mentioned the Irvin Committee. It it seems like just a different era. Even to the most partisan of legislators, was there a belief that we're gonna leave this door cracked, and it's only if we know the president has done something that we're we're going to act, where it seems now you have one group that's already predetermined guilt or predetermined innocence. And was that just a different era? Is that that just time? We just look at things differently because of time.
1: Um, I think the big difference between then and now was not so much the partisanship, because, you know, there were Republican senators who criticized the Irving committee, you know, throughout and criticized its work. The big difference was that people then tended to agree on facts. So as the facts brought the Watergate break in closer and closer to President Nixon, um, people didn't doubt that that is what had happened. Now you have a group of, large group of Americans who cannot agree on the most basic fact which is that Joe Biden won the 19 won the uh, 2020 election. And I think that that, and they have their own set of facts. I mean to some of us, they seem completely absurd, right? That there was somehow there were <laughs> what was the one we heard today that there were uh, somehow the Italian military was interfering in the election. God knows why they would or how they would, but, you know, there's a bunch of crazy stuff out there. And now the maybe it's the Internet that allows people to put out crazy stuff that don't doesn't match reality and have a lot of people glom onto it and believe it and and form an entire political, you know, movement around it. That was not the case back in um in the in 1972. In 1972 you didn't have an internet, you had three, you didn't even have cable news really, you had you had three major networks, you had people who reported facts that were uncovered by investigators and it was a slow drip of the facts that in fact resulted in that day right before Nixon resigned When Barry Goldwater and two other Republican senators went to the White House and said, "It's over. You don't have the votes to avoid an impeachment. Um, They're going to impeach you." And when the it was the remember it was the Republicans who told Nixon, "It's over. You you couldn't be you can't be impeached." That is so different from today, when as we speak, you have Kevin McCarthy. Refusing to say publicly that um, Joe Biden is was a duly elected president of the United States, um, even though Kevin McCarthy was angry at uh, Trump on January the sixth. Today, he's he's walked back and is trying to, you know, is playing into a set of false facts, and um, that is that is the big difference. It's the is the it's the ability for two different groups of people that to maintain two different beliefs, um, not based on any factual, um, you know, knowledge.
0: And I, I guess some of that, doesn't some of that go really fall on the shoulders of we the people because if polling said something, maybe I'm being cynical here, but if polling says something very different, then I, you'd get a different, perhaps a different answer from Kevin McCarthy. if if Joe Biden being president wouldn't get him primaried or some of his people primary, he might say that Joe Biden is president. So don't we the people bear some responsibility on how our elected officials uh, behave in critical moments?
1: Well, yes and no. I mean, I I wanna, elected officials do have an obligation to lead. And so a Kevin McCarthy and a Mitch McConnell who had they said consistently for the last year and a half, what they said in the days right after the January 6th insurrection, right, was that this was a terrible thing and it was Donald Trump's fault. Had they maintained that, I'm not sure you would have had the same level of um, belief in the big lie that we have now. Um, The Republican Party stepped back, let's face it, they stepped back from the truth. And in doing so, they gave more, you know, more credibility to the big lie because they left it to mostly Democrats and to a handful of Republicans like Liz Cheney um, to uh, say, no, 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 this was this was a Uh, this is false. Uh, Biden really did win the election and Trump really did try to have some role in, you know, trying to overturn a, you know, an illegitimate election. So I I do think that the leadership of the Republican Party has been really remiss in letting this thing go as far as it's gone.
0: I'm going to read the final line from Nixon's farewell address before leaving Um, the White House, and have you comment on the other side of it. And he said, never be petty, always remember others may hate you, but those who hate you don't win unless you hate them, and then you destroy yourself, unquote. I mean, this is clearly above my pay grade to understand, but it seems in a few words Nixon captures his modus operandi, or the, opposite, the antithesis of it, and, and for most of his political career, it sort of culminates, in my view, is this sort of Shakespearean tragedy. I just want to know what your thoughts <laughs> about, those, about those lines were. It's, wow, really?
1: Well, you know, Gary Wills, I think it was, the historian, wrote a book where he, about Nixon where he characterized Nixon as this sort of Shakespearean tragic character. Okay, And um, certainly those lines are so interesting in retrospect, because, of course, Nixon, who, by the way, on many, many different levels, was a very good president. He was extraordinarily competent. Um, He did things that no president had been able to do, like um, open up our relationships, open up a relationship with with China. Um, So he was really quite a good president, but he had this he had this paranoid streak in him and a will to cut corners and break laws in order to retain power even when he didn't need to i mean and and of course the the real tragedy of of 19 of the watergate is that they created this sort of criminal enterprise at the committee to reelect the president in when they were about to win a landslide election which everybody knew was going to be a landslide election so um, you know it's, a, it's it is Shakespearean in its <laughs> in, in, in its scope for sure
0: how do you assess I mean you have the benefit of 50 years of hindsight but how do you assess the January 6 hearings uh, in particular the public mood with this sort of 50year shadow of Watergate hanging over it
1: I, you know, the public mood is obviously very polarized, like all the public is, right? So you know, Republicans will say this is a this is a partisan show. Um, but and and Democrats will say, no, this is this is the, an effort to get at the truth. Um, I, I'm not sure that it's going to change too many minds. However, I think it will accomplish one thing. Um, I think the sheer scope of this and the way Trump himself has behaved may begin the separation of Trump from the Republican Party. Now, as uh, you know, as an American, that's a really good thing because we need to, political parties in this country. It's one thing if one party believes in lower taxes and and the other party believes in more social welfare. Okay, That's a legitimate political debate to have. It's quite another thing if one party believes that you can overthrow elections by having a strategy that creates doubt about the integrity of the election and another party that doesn't. So We now have a Trumpian Republican Party um, fighting, frankly, uh, primary to primary with the remnants of a normal Republican Party. And that, I think, this hearing might help to give some support to what I call a more normal Republican Party. Um, one that isn't involved in wild conspiracy theories for which there is no evidence whatsoever. And that that could be good. Is it going to change minds? Not particularly, okay. But to the extent that it says to people, Trump is a problem. Trump is, is, is a distraction. Um, he is all about Trump, and he's not about the rest of us. To the extent that that happens as a result of the hear- these hearings I think that will probably be um, a good outcome
0: you know, you know it's interesting in your last answer I, I'm thinking of uh, former Republicans in fact I'll just take one that um, I actually worked for uh, when he ran for president in 1988 uh, Jack Kemp I mean there's no room for Jack Kemp in in, in the current in the current climate
1: Listen, there's barely any room for Ronald Reagan in okay, who's a who who until Trump was an absolute saint in the Republican Party. There's barely any room for Ronald Reagan anymore. Um, the as I say, there is a normal Republican Party out there, but it really needs to get some. You know what? OK, <laughs> instead of you know what, which I won't say, <laughs> OK,
0: this it's, is public radio. You cannot say those things.
1: <laughs> I know, well, I know that's why I'm being cautious. <laughs> but honestly, the the timidity of the Republican Party um, in taking on Trump has has really been disturbing, um, especially now that we're, we know all of the things that they said right after January 6th and, and when they were, we know all of the emails back and forth. They hate the guy. They know that the guy has got a screw loose. They know that he is not, it, he only is about him. He's really not about the rest of the Republican Party. They know all this stuff and they still, I think, are abdicating their leadership responsibilities to say this out loud. Um, the Republican Party, without Trump, is actually a very strong political party. The Republican party with Trump, I guarantee you will go the way of the real minority party if they keep engaging in just um, conspiracy theories and paranoid things about the 2020 election.
0: Well, you you mentioned conspiracy theories and paranoia. I'm hearing you say to tie this conversation together that there's a a Nixonian spirit that sort of uh, (laughs) pervades the party.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, I'll add another data point. If you start with the Joe McCarthy was a Republican Senator McCarthy, so if you start in the 50s, 1950 to 1952, where the is is the McCarthy era, which ends with because McCarthy basically takes on the army and when he took on the army he took on uh President Eisenhower which was who was one of the most popular presidents we've ever had um so you you have the Republican Party for a period of time being completely cowed by Joe McCarthy until that bubble bursts then you have the Republican Party um Mm -hmm. being completely in line with Richard Nixon until that the wrongdoing gets, you know, has light on it. Now you have a Republican party that is dominated by Donald Trump and people are afraid to speak out against him. Well, guess what? Somebody has got to do this. Right now it's Liz Cheney, um, bless her heart, as they say. And it is also Mike Pence. And now that that's overlooked, right? I mean, everybody pays attention to Cheney what we've seen here is that Mike Pence is after all the man who they wanted to hang, right? <laughs> the, 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 the rioters on uh, January 6th wanted to hang and he is now we know the man that Donald Trump said, maybe that's a good idea. Maybe they have the right idea. Okay. So there's obviously no love lost about, between Mike Pence and Donald Trump and a less well, covered story than Liz Cheney is the fact that Mike Pence has been going around the country. He has been campaigning in many cases for people, for Republican candidates who Donald Trump was against. And the most notable was of course, the uh, governor, the Republican primary for governor of Georgia where um, Pence's candidate won big and, and um, Trump's candidate lost. So and and by the way, the same thing happened in Pennsylvania in the Senate race. So um, Pence is, uh, although with a with a different outcome, um, but but they were very close. So Pence has been out there um, kind of as the representative of the traditional Republican Party, um, the non-Trump party. Now, he isn't, you know, shouting from the rooftops. Um, Trump is a bad man, but he is certainly by his actions showing us that um, Donald Trump is um, a real problem and he doesn't doesn't agree with him.
0: Well, it seems like a the shadow of Watergate still lingers um time will tell if the republicans will will become like the party they replaced back in the 1840s the Whigs. so we'll we'll right. we'll stay we'll stay tuned if that happens we, w- we will have you back for more analysis i will take issue with one thing you said today You started by saying I could be wrong. Since you've been in the public morality, Dr. K-Mark, you are never wrong. So so I take issue with that one statement. Other than that, it's great to be in conversation with you again. Thank you for joining us on the public morality.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Byron.
0: Stay tuned as I speak with columnist Roy Johnson as we continue our focus on the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-in here on The Public Morality. Welcome back. I'm joined by Roy Johnson, a longtime columnist and winner of the Edward R. Murrow Prize for Journalistic Excellence. Johnson recently penned an op-ed for the Alabama Media Group reflecting on how Watergate influenced his career choice. Roy Johnson, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you, Byron. It is a pleasure and an honor to be here. Mm -hmm. Uh, According to your recent op-ed, as you were coming of age, your dream was to be a lawyer. Mm -hmm. What happened?
2: Well, Watergate happened for one thing. You know, I, People often ask me how I got into journalism and I respond that journalism was always in me. Uh, as I note in that uh, column, which uh, looks at the impact of the Watergate break-in, which occurred when I was a sophomore in high school and kind of unleashed something that was likely uh, to a degree already there. I was editor of my junior high paper, which is really more of a, of a couple of pieces of paper on a mimeograph machine. And for folks who don't know what that is, they can, they can Google it. Uh, and then became editor of my high school paper, but really didn't aspire to become a journalist because at that time I didn't see a lot of journalists who looked like me outside of the black press. And so just did not see that as a, a potential career for me. Uh, and, and conversely, growing up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, on, in the heart of Black Wall Street, I saw plenty of Black professionals, including Black lawyers. And, you know, my favorite show, as I outlined in the column, was Perry Mason. And so I aspired to be Perry, who won all of his cases, wore nice suits, and, and seemed to have a pretty good life. So, uh, but this this thing called Watergate happened, and it just um, piqued my interest uh, over the next couple of years until, Of course, we know Nixon resigned. And at that point, I was like, wow, if two journalists can bring down the president of the United States, that might be a pretty cool thing to, pretty cool profession to do. So uh, Watergate happened and likely unleashed something that was already there.
0: 50 years later, post uh, Watergate, Woodward and Bernstein have, those names have taken on sort of an iconic cultural status to some. Uh, but it's important to know they were very young guys when they were taking on the story. Uh, In in your estimation, looking back, would it be fair to suggest that had Ben Bradley, the uh, executive editor of the Washington Post, knew the ramifications of its importance,
2: it's unlikely we would even know the names Woodward and Bernstein. Oh, I, I, I don't know if I agree with that. I think Ben Bradley was as much of a crusader for truth uh, and 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 getting at the root of the story, as the reporters were, as you mentioned, they were both in their twenties. Uh, Woodward was just 29, and Bernstein 28 when the break-in happened. But if if you read their book and followed the story, you know they they hit uh, roadblocks and and uh, walls and and potholes all along the way. They were challenged by Bradley, no question. Any boss would challenge your reporters, particularly once it became clear that the line was leading to the White House. So I think Bradley played his role perfectly in that he challenged Woodward and Bernstein to have every T crossed and every I dotted so that when the dots did begin to connect, it was, you know, their, their facts were unassailable, that the connection was clear and that the, the impact was was certainly something that not just could happen, but should happen, but making sure that it was driven by the truth.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and I'm sorry if I wasn't clear. What, what I meant was, if, if Ben Bradley had known the ramifications of this using uh, uh, Nixon language, this third-rate break-in, <laughs> um, would actually make its way all the way to the Oval Office. He might have given initially given the story to more senior Washington Post reporters. That's what that's that's what I know. Mean. Oh, okay.
2: Yeah, I mean that 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 could be fair. Uh, it, it took a while. I mean, it was it was uh, it, it was a break in, but pretty quickly had ties to the campaign, and that one of the men who was arrested for the break-in was found to have deposited $25,000 in his account that was traced to the re-election, Nixon re-election campaign. So uh, I I think he had faith in his young reporters and they certainly, uh, you know, renewed that and reinforced that faith by just being dogged reporters by being diligent in their research uh, and and not moving too fast. I think one danger we have as reporters sometimes, particularly now in an era of instant news, of of trying to be first without necessarily making sure that you're right, uh, is is the tendency to move too fast. So uh, perhaps, thank God, there was no social media back then and that they were forced to just be diligent and make sure that every step of their journey was clear, correct, uh, and you know, you're just just unassailable.
0: Okay. I, I mean, you, you sort of uh, lead into my next question because we're, we're talking about uh, investigative journalism. Uh, And especially, it's not until you dig in, if you know, as Gertrude Stein said, whether there's any there, there. And sometimes you don't get anything. And so I guess part of my question to you, um, that we're living in a time of journalism, which still professes to be the fourth estate, but there's no time for... Uh, or resources for for that investigative piece? As you you said, it it took a little time before Watergate became Watergate. And if if we're locked into immediate gratification, I don't know if we have the time to unpack Watergate in the same way.
2: I beg to differ. I think that the resources are different. We are still seeing a lot of investigative journalists. Now, let's remember, Watergate was a unique story. I mean, it was was a very, very unique story. Not every investigative uh, piece is going to have the kind of ramifications that it it had. But I think we're seeing uh, good, enterprising journalism all the time. A lot of times it is overshadowed by the need for immediacy. It is overshadowed by the 24-hour news cycle. It is overshadowed by... Uh, cable news and, and and just the noise. But if you are a diligent reader, uh, it is not hard to find enterprising pieces. Uh, last year, our team won a Pulitzer for an investigative piece on the use of police dogs in Alabama and, and how they had been utilized to brutalize uh, African-Americans. I mean, that was a Pulitzer... Prize-winning investigative piece. We we did more uh, similar reporting today on a town here in Alabama that literally was using its resources to just stop and shake down motorists when they drove through town and, and raising millions in fines and confiscating property uh, to the extent that it changed laws. Uh, it became a national story. So I th- and I think there there is. Uh, there are resources now and and people are uh, entities are very intentional about trying to find those pathways those caves that are worth climbing into and and digging into just as readers we just have to be more intentional about searching for them.
0: And and at the same time uh, following up if Watergate Uh, you could argue that a a similar Watergate has already occurred uh, in in the moment. But if Watergate occurred today uh, against a sitting president, it's likely that the president's supporters would dismiss it uh, as fake news. In fact, that was in essence what the Nixonian team tried to do, but there were just too many drips. Um, Your
2: thoughts? Oh, exactly. But supporters... Aren't the law. <laughs> supporters, Nixon supporters screamed to high heaven, but he lost his support in in Congress. He lost his support uh, within his party. And that is what led to him resigning. I mean, essentially they told him, you either leave or or you will be indicted. So um, the supporters can scream all they want. If 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 something similar to Watergate was found today and there was a direct line to the White House that was unimpeachable, uh, I would dare say that no matter how loud supporters screamed and and how much they utilized the fake news, that ultimately our our legal system, our constitution, our laws, which a lot of those supporters purport to revere, uh, would ultimately prevail.
0: I want to go to something in your recent column, uh, direct quote and have you comment on the the back end. Uh, You wrote, in an era when too many treat the constitution like the 10 commandments, instead of a flawed document created by flawed men in flawed times, an era when our leaders stubbornly retreat to their respective party corners and throw rocks at each other rather than seek common sense, common ground. Uh, my question: Isn't your analysis a variation on an age-old problem in that that has always been America's challenge, and only the methodology in which we throw the rocks has changed?
2: There's there's certainly two components to the uh, the, the the segment that you read. One is that too many people look at the Constitution, which you know, I think all Americans hold as as the bedrock of our democracy, uh, but without recognizing that it was written by human beings at a time very different than today, and it was not a perfect document. So, and it was certainly not written for, with with any consciousness of the America we are today from a technological standpoint, from a media standpoint, from a business standpoint, from any standpoint, uh, they could not have predicted conditions and and forces at work today. So, all everything they wrote, every word, has to at least be guided through the prism of reality, the prism of today, and not held so sacrosanct that you know we believe that the people who wrote the Constitution were mind readers and and futurists who could have pre- predicted everything that was going to happen and written rules for that. We have to understand that 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 we have to be flexible. We have to look at look at the laws, look at the constitution and say, okay, what is the practical application of this today? And how might this need to be adjusted in order to reflect that reality? The second part about the rock throwing, I've been around for a few minutes, <laughs> Byron, and, and while I haven't necessarily been a Uh, been steeped in political history. I've been an observer of history and of our time for a while and and consider myself to at least be friendly with a number of people who have different beliefs, different political beliefs, different religious beliefs. And so uh, many of them particularly those of a certain age you know older than 50 or so say it is a little different now that when there was disagreement before there was more of an effort to find some common ground and then go out later and get a drink right go go out and go to dinner together you know yes there's always been extremes on both sides but for the most part i mean it took a bipartisan effort to create the Civil Rights Act of 64. It took a bipartisan effort to create the voting racks. It, ta- it, it takes bipartisan efforts to get things done that have a positive, or, or at least intended to have a positive impact on the American people. So uh, I, while there's always been disagreement, I don't think there's been the, the retrenching into the corners and throwing rocks from afar and just the refusal to entertain anything beyond what is in my heart, what is what I believe and what I want. I do think that we are at a different place and time and that's unfortunate. Mm -hmm.
0: And see, and the reason I raise that is because it seems uh, that that makes the emergence of a, I'm using in quotations, a Watergate, more difficult to achieve for the very reasons you mentioned, because I can't see Mitch McConnell um, in the same role as Barry Goldwater going down to tell Donald Trump, "You don't have the votes."
2: It, it, it's a hypothetical. I mean, I you know we can we can speculate all it's, it's day. History. We're yes, about, it's history. Yes, absolutely, if history. One one man in one at one point in time. Uh, it, it, at some point, though, Mitch might be. Forced to. I mean, if if the if the reporting if the facts are such that um, he has no choice, then either he goes or somebody goes. Look look at what is happening now after more than a decade of entrenchment on gun reform. It at least appears as we speak that something may emerge from Congress that is at least the beginning of a bipartisan effort at gun reform. Looking at what has been previewed so far, it is a baby step. And, and certainly for those of us who do believe and passionately believe that we must finally get to, you know we must address this in a manner that uh, looks at where we are today, not where we were 25, 30, 40, 50 years ago, that I think we're, we're, we're at least making a step. And that is a bipartisan effort. The, the man who's leading it from, from Connecticut says he's been trying to do this for years and has not seen it em, em evolve to this degree uh, in all of his years of trying to have these conversations. Unfortunately, it took the murder of 19 children And uh, two adults in Uvalde, Texas. It took the murder of uh, the number—you know, I think it was eleven people in Buffalo. It took the murder of four people in Tulsa, Oklahoma, for those who were entrenched in their corners to finally say, "Okay," because the respondents of American people want this. Uh, I I read there was a um, a, a gun reform uh, movement—not a movement, but a, a demonstration. Uh, in Texas after Rivaldi, I believe it was in in Dallas or it may have been in Austin at the Capitol. And the organizers said it was the first time they had ever had that kind of a demonstration and there weren't counter protesters. The tide has shifted in America on gun reform and and the the ones who are against it can stay in their corners all they want. Uh, But all they're doing is unmasking uh, their own hardened hearts, uh, which are not in alignment with most of the American people. So change can happen. The Mitch McConnells of the world <laughs> could uh, see their, their hearts softened and, and, uh, and moved in a certain way. But yes, I agree. It's hard to see Mitch going down and doing that to Trump. But right now, Trump's not in the White House, so it's a moot point.
0: Uh, well. With apologies to uh, Perry Mason, it sounds to me uh, as you made the right decision to follow your heart and become a journalist. Roy Johnson, I want to thank you, sir, for joining me today on The Public Morality. It's been an honor to be in conversation with you, sir.
2: Honored to be here anytime. Thank you. continue to do what you do to bring these issues to light and bring smart conversations uh, to a platform that is often void of it. So thank you.
0: The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at PublicMorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N at PublicMorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Morality on WSNC can now listen on its app, Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click Open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama for allowing us to broadcast the Public Morality at their studios. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.